so excited to begin this episode um, and I hope that you all are ready for something really great. I was able to interview two professors of nursing um, from the University of Alabama School of Nursing regarding a concept that they have began speaking about and giving a public presentation on for nurses um, regarding resiliency. It was really quite an honor to speak with them and I want to just tell you a little bit about who they are and why I chose to interview them. I was actually referred to Dr. McGinnis's work via one of our chaplains, Dale McGabby. And as I began looking at her research and um, information, her biography, it became clear that it would have been a shame not to reach out and just see if she'd be willing to talk with me on the podcast. And to my very much delight, she agreed and actually suggested that we include her colleague, Brenda. And they shared with me what they present in their talks with nurses. And I was able to um, ask them all about community resiliency skills. Dr. Brenda Mayfield is an instructor at the University of Alabama School of Nursing. She received her MSN and DNP from the University of Alabama School of Nursing, um, and she received her BSN from Colorado State University in Pueblo. She recently obtained her doctorate as her CRNP is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And interestingly, has a very full career prior to becoming a nurse of um, working as a paramedic and firefighter with EMS. She's had background in ER, critical care, public health, ICU, and mental health. Dr. Tina M. McGinnis, PhD, is Professor Emerita at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Nursing. She received her BSN at ODU, and her MSN at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, and then followed up with her doctorate at the University of Pittsburgh. What an honor it was to speak with both of these women, and I truly hope that you get as much out of this interview as I did. Welcome to Oracle. Thank you both so much for meeting with me and doing this podcast. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, so as I understand it, you um, collaborated on a presentation uh, that you give for nurses specifically um, in how to cultivate resilience. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to create this presentation of resiliency skills? Um, a long time ago, when I was a doctoral student in my first year, I found that the concept of resilience was gaining ground. And uh, as a psychiatric mental health nurse, I thought, what's better than bouncing back from adversity, which is what resiliency is amongst the um, one of the definitions. Uh, but then as my colleague and I were going through the uh, mass trauma of the COVID pandemic, we decided to try to do something about it to learn how to help nurses. Brenda, what's, what's your take on it? 
So, you know, I, I think it's always been an underlying thing with me. I spent 20 years in, in EMS before I even became a nurse as a fireman and a paramedic. And um, our helping professions have struggled with uh, addictions and chronic health conditions and chronic mental illness at higher rates than, than the average population. And, and as well, that includes our veterans. And, um, you know, when COVID came along, it, it really kind of took that spotlight and shined it on nursing. Um, and and it, it really became evident that, that, you know, while nurses are very resilient, you know, sometimes that, that gets stressed and it, um, it starts to kind of wane. And so really, you know, Dr. McGinnis and I were like, we need to, we need to try and address this, you know, and it's being addressed, uh, you know, all across the country on multiple fronts. And, you know, um, I'm also a psych mental health nurse practitioner and it's, um, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of dig out of that hole once you're in the hole. And so how do we, how do we get nurses to, to come back up? you know, yes. after they, they've been through so much. Well, and I love that you included other um, medical health professionals as well, because, it, you know, yeah. it's all of us who are drawn to the helping professions. It is. And, you know, we are the, that, that whole broad umbrella of the helping professions, you know, that is who we call when we need help. Mm-hmm. So who helps the helpers? Yeah. And, the helpers? and, and Dr. Uh, Mayfield, actually took it so far as to design her uh, doctoral project around helping nurses, specifically rural nurses, who may be some of the most under-resourced people uh, in, in the helping professions. And so we, it's based on these community resiliency model skills. Are, they have a lot of evidence. So she chose an evidence-based approach. And we find that it, there's even more emerging evidence about this approach. So it's got a good background in science. And we've been successful in implementing it. So we'll, we'll share some of those skills in this podcast. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's such good news in the time where we haven't had much of that. So, yeah. Um, well, I'm very excited for my next question, just because um, <laughs> we should have coordinated this on May the 4th. <laughs> May yes. the 4th be with you. Um, one day late. In your presentation, you call on nurses to become Jedi. I assume you don't mean lightsabers and levitation, though. <laughs> Could you share yeah. what you mean by that? So I would just say that um, we're both National Alliance on Mental Illness members and supporters and and we do community education on mental health. Um, recall that NAMI is a, um, a community-based approach that uh, involves advocacy and education. And so NAMI talks about valuing justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And those are that spells Jedi. Mm-hmm. And we sure could use some lightsabers sometimes, <laughs> but especially in state legislatures. Yes. Or suicide prevention, for example, the 988. And at the same time, we believe that nurses are all for justice. They're all, they want people to have a voice in their uh, uh, health care and make decisions on their own. And 
I believe that nurses also support equity and equal access to care. And we use diversity in a variety of ways in that we say um, it includes all people, but it also includes neurodiversity. The brain can be changed by trauma. And we've seen a lot of trauma since 2020. And of course we wanna include everybody and that includes people who are uh, from vulnerable populations. So we're all Jedi Knights here in, uh, <laughs> in Nobby and Alabama and in Alabama for uh, promotion of, of well-being. Wonderful. Well, and I think too, you know, you know, when you have, when you talk about Jedi, it's really a great, you know, it's kind of like our nurses are our Jedis to begin with because, because they provide in, in an inclusive environment, those safe places for patients, um, safe places for people to go um, where, where they feel comfortable um, seeking, seeking care. Um, and so, you know, that brings into some of that inclusion part. Um, and so, so I really, you know, I love that, that acronym because I think it really does embody our nurses. I couldn't agree more. Well, so we have spoken just briefly about some of the stressors um, and that have befallen our nurses over the last couple of years. And even um, since I wrote these questions, uh, we've had a unique um, addition of stressor to our staff here with some very unfortunate recent current events with the shooting um, in our city. And so we've actually been um, required to take an active shooter training module and um, optional live classes. So it's just one more thing added to our nurses to be worried about you know, violence from their patients, from their visitors, from whomever. Um, and I think that that's just one more element that adds to burnout, which has become widely studied um, among nurse researchers. And how can we distinguish though the burnout from other conditions like depression? So I think it's really important that we really kind of understand some of the definitions that that kind of accompany you know burnout and and that kind of includes even um like compassion fatigue and um moral injury and and what we call soul injury because they can get kind of mushed together okay and and it is possible to experience these things without having like a diagnosed clinical disorder you know, and so we'll talk a little bit about that later in the presentation, but, you know, the World Health Organization uh, says that burnout really occurs as sort of that chronic workplace stress that doesn't really get managed very well, um, be that on a professional level, at the leadership level sometimes, or even the personal level. And so it really takes a combination of uh, management on all of those fronts to successfully, you know, thwart burnout. Um, and, and it's not, you know, I think part of the recognition of burnout in, in defining it is, is understanding that it's not just simply a matter of I'm very tired and unmotivated. Okay. You know, and so there's, there's some components that go into it and I'll let Dr. McGinnis, um, kind of elaborate on those components that go into burnout. 
Well, and I like what you said, Kristen, about uh, what you were saying. I heard as cumulative load, cumulative, yeah. cumulative burden mm. of, of stress and distress and trauma. Um, and clinical depression is, you can meet the criteria for it as outlined by the American Psychiatric Association. You can also have varying degrees of it, just like post-traumatic stress. These conditions are on a continuum and the greater the cumulative burden, as you mentioned, an event that happened in your community where was tragic, everybody felt it. And then on top of that, you're reminded because you have to take a safety training to prevent injury in the case of further tragedy. Uh, so it leads to mental and emotional exhaustion without an outlet for understanding it. And that's why we like these resiliency skills, which we're going to share. Um, and the, one of the worst things is that nurses can feel alone and that nurses, uh, when they are, let's just say physically assaulted, and that happens with too great of a frequency. And there's no easy solution. If nurses feel alone in that situation, then, uh, that leads to greater dis, uh, burnout and disillusionment. And uh, that's when you lose a nurse. And you can lose a nurse to job changing. You can lose a nurse to uh, substance use. You can lose a nurse to depression and post-traumatic stress. Worst of all, you can lose a nurse to suicide. Nurses have significantly higher rates of suicide than the general population. So an awareness of all of these things and a focus on wellness and a focus on not being alone is, is just a huge component of finding well-being in the workplace. Mm -hmm. and, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that re-energized me as a nurse when I was in critical care was attending a conference. And if you were to have asked me if that was going to be the outcome, I would not have believed you. You know, I thought, well, this is just going to help my career or, you know, I'll have to find something to present on when I get back. I had no idea the, you know, camaraderie that I would feel from that experience, but myself and one other nurse were selected uh, to be sent. And um, partially because I think we were the ones interested. <laughs> However, you know, it, it's just, it's sad to me that that part of our nursing community is not as accessible as I wish it could be. Um, whether it be, you know, financial barriers and or perceived imposter syndrome barriers, you know, reasons why people think, oh, well, that's just for the, the doctoral nurses, or that's just for the, you know, professors or whatever. And it's, it's really not, <laughs> at least from that experience that I had. I think what you experienced was the importance of feeding our social brains. Yeah. Yes. It's huge. There's a, uh, well, a surgeon general just came out with a, a, a paper saying, this is urgent. We've got to 
work on preventing loneliness. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this was two days ago, and he usually doesn't come out with papers uh, unless there's a public health emergency. And, and so the emergency is uh, isolation and loneliness, which is, are the precursors to uh, depression, anxiety, and suicide. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's what you, you fed your social brand. You got amongst like-minded people. There's so many ways to do that. And you, that there's another, there's a study from Harvard that has been going on for 80 years to say the yes, quality yes. of relationships, the quality of relationships, especially in adulthood and older age are what makes all the difference in the world. And it doesn't mean that you have to have a warm and fuzzy relationship with everybody in your family. You do need to get out, feed your social brain, become less lonely, and you could have a work family, work relationships that feed your social brain and support you and validate you. You could have a pickleball family, <laughs> you know, a walking buddy, a church family. It, there are all sorts of ways that humans feed their social brains and, and certainly our nurses associations and our professional associations within nurses, within nursing does this. And I'm so grateful to my, me personally, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association. And Kentucky has a great chapter, by the way. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And I think that, you know, part of that, you know, when we kind of get to to where our, we're having some challenges, you know, we, we tend to self-isolate. And so that can that can compound the problem. You know, we kind of start distancing ourselves from the people that can support us and from those nurturing relationships. Um, you know, we, we put on our suit of armor and, and nothing shall pierce it, right? And so, you know, nurses are very good at doing that. We're very good at doing that. And so sometimes it's, you know, hard for us to acknowledge within ourselves when we're, we're carrying around our armor. Mm -hmm. uh, and not letting other people in to to help support us and and you know like-minded people who've gone through some of the same things we're going through and um you know i think recognizing that we're all vulnerable to the same problems the same issues and the same things that you know bother me may bother other people mm -hmm. you know we, we all have those vulnerabilities the fact that we're nurses does not um invalidate that yeah absolutely i mean i think what comes to my mind is uh burden you know i think mm -hmm. for most of the nurses that i've known and loved and, and worked with we're terrible at self-care because we don't want to burden anyone else you know I, we view our role as to to take on the burdens of others and to ease them and so if you have something going on, you don't want to bother anybody with it, even if you did feel comfortable to share. So, I, you know, I think at least here in the South anyway, you know, politeness can kill. <laughs> I think we take it to an extreme. That, a lot of that, too, is, is um, you know, kind of this notion of self-stigma. Um, I can't be the one to ask for help. I'm supposed to be the helper. Yes. You know, and so well I think said. that plays a big part of it in, in, in all of our helping professions um, because we are the ones that come to help. So, so you know, nobody's going to want help from me if I can't help myself. Um, I had a, 
I was reading an article, I guess it was several months ago, and, and it was talking about nurses and their caregiving role. And they described it that nurses would give you their, give a patient, give somebody their very last piece of clothing, and then be standing there with no clothes on freezing themselves. Um, so, so you're right, we're very reluctant to try and save ourselves at times, even when we know we're not in a good place. Mm -hmm. um, in that mindset, we really need to change that in our, in our profession because it's leading to some not so good things. Um, well, and, and a nurse is a precious resource. Absolutely. Precious, uh -huh. absolutely precious and vital to the health of a community. And it, instead of nurses week, we need nurses yes. here. I mean, I, every day should be nurses day because when you, when you have a great nurse, wherever you are, you have a great day. Is that not true? If you're Absolutely. in the hospital, if you encounter a nurse in the clinic, if you encounter a nurse on the street, you're going to have a, a great interaction because of the skills and the focus on uh, potential and well-being and and when we see a nurse that gets wounded by cumulative trauma, we want to do something about that. And that's, uh, I, I believe I speak for you, Brenda, we really carry this message of hope. It is. It is a message of hope we need to carry for ourselves, but you know, we, we are the most trusted profession. I mean, people will come up to you as a nurse and you're a perfect stranger and they will tell you their deepest, darkest secrets without batting an eyelash. And, and what a privilege it is to, to be in that position as a nurse. Um, but it does take a toll on us. And, and so to support self and to take care of self, in a kind, loving, and compassionate manner is extremely important. Um, we, we talk to ourselves and we treat ourselves as nurses in, in a manner sometimes where we would never do that to a patient. Absolutely. You know, we need to be, we need to start, we need to show up for ourselves and be our own best friends. Yes, yes. You know, when patients are, are having some negative thoughts like that and they're not being kind and compassionate, I, I ask them to kind of you know, picture your best friend sitting in the chair across from you and you're helping to support them through a tough time and, and tell them exactly what you're thinking about yourself. And they're like, no, I would never say that to them. And and so so it begs the question, why are we saying those things to ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to become cynical. And it's also important to reflect back. In, sometimes I ask myself, out of all the reasons, of, out of all the professions in the world, how did I get to nursing? And, and my heart still glows for the potential of human beings and their ability to uh, help one another. And, and I go back to that. That's, that's what helps me combat um, cynicism. And I think that the cynicism since uh, March of 2020 has been, unfortunately, all powerful in so many first line, first responder positions. And I just see, I saw a nurse on, I was, I actually went to Greece not too long ago and I saw a nurse uh, there. Uh, we were in a, a, a actually a boat <laughs> together. And, uh, and uh, she just happened to mention she was an ICU nurse. And I said, thank you for your service during COVID. And she, she shared 
her story with several people in this in this small boat uh and i thought she's a hero mm -hmm. and yet how often do people recognize that i hope they're recognizing it more and more and that they don't forget that because that was a uh, developmental events in the lives of many nurses and how they cope with it and will give us uh, a direction for future pandemics because they sure as heck could happen mm -hmm. and and that can those experiences can help us understand how to better design healthcare and help Americans live healthier lives. So in your presentation you all discuss a little bit about the neurological system of nurses. And so I'm wondering how have nurses' neurological systems been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? It, it's been stuck in high gear. <laughs> you know, part of that nervous system activation, when we talk about sympathetic activation, comes from constantly being on guard, constantly, constantly kind of being vigilant. Um, and, 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 and what's really supposed to happen when we are, are activating our nervous system like that, it's, it's to get us through something critical, right? But then what we fail to do, because we're operating at a high level all the time, waiting for something else to happen, is our parasympathetic system cannot take over. And so it's kind of the equivalent of, of um, trying to put the brakes on when your foot's pushing the gas all the way down all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, so some of these crumb skills, and that's what's happened is, is we're in this kind of chronic state of, of survival, a chronic state of, of, of nervous system activation. And we're not giving our brains and our bodies a chance to let that parasympathetic stimulation happen and return us back to a state that is not so activated. Um, and so that leads to a lot of oxidative stress and a lot of cortisol release and a lot of free radicals floating around. And um, it, it leads to chronic illness. It leads to mental health issues and, and it kind of puts us not in a good spot. So um, one of the things, the, the creme skills we keep referring to are, are wonderful avenues to, to be able to um, take your foot off the gas, so to speak. Could you go into a little more in depth about the concept of prolonged trauma? So yeah, I mean the, the pandemic um, is is one kind of giant prolonged trauma. Um, you know, it's 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 trauma, uh, big traumas. Um, you know, Elaine Miller Karras likes to call these the big T's and the little T's and um, of our lives, and and to it, you know, they happen. We can't prevent them. And so how do we respond to them in a healthy way? And so, you know, with COVID and, and this pandemic, it's it's been kind of a long drawn out thing over time and a lot of kind of repetitive traumas. Some were big, some were little, but they all are very um, kind of cumulative, uh -huh. you know, and it, it kind of, you know, took what we, we thought we knew about a lot of things and put it on a, a lot of shifting sand. So what we thought was was correct and true is, is, you know, the very next day is changing. 
uh, throughout this. So it was hard, I think, for, for nurses to kind of find an anchor point. Um, you know, you come back to work one day and now we're all in PPE, um, where the day before it was like only we needed part of the PPE. Um, you know, so, so the kind of those shifting things, it was shifts in policy and shifts in environment and shifts in expectations. And it really made it, it was difficult to find solid ground, um, which kind of contributed to, to being able to find some solidness in, in the, the whole pandemic. Um, and, and I would just say that, that I would underscore the cumulative burden of trauma that there are big T's, perhaps a big trauma is caring for people in the aftermath of a mass shooting. Uh, people will deal with that differently based on temperament and genetics and life experiences and really even whether or not they had adversity in childhood. Uh, there are so many things. So, and then the other thing I would say is that we regularly as a profession go to the extremes of human existence with people. <laughs> Routinely. They profession. I mean, I, there are many helping professions, first responders, but we're there for hours a day. Mm. And we see um, the joy of welcoming a child into the world and we're there at the end of life. And, uh, Speaking of end of life, uh, Brenda has uh, some interesting comments about what is the effect of trauma at the end of life, a soul injury. Yeah, so we can talk a little bit about that. Um, it's it's kind of something I've recently uh, kind of started delving into, and that a lot of it came from, you know, when we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, I always really felt there was you know, something missing because a lot of moral injury gets pulled into that. Um, but but moral injury in my mind didn't necessarily explain all of what was going on. Um, you just know, for the audience, would you define moral injury just briefly? Yeah, so, so that is when uh, you kind of, uh, one feels like uh, their conscience or their, their moral compass um, has kind of been violated in, in some way um and and that betrayal can lead to a moral injury um soul injury doesn't necessarily originate from that um and and these are wounds that you know it's it's not religion but these are wounds that kind of go past our ego defenses within ourselves um and and kind of disconnect us from from who we thought we were um it's it's one of those things that's like often overlooked and unassessed in, in people because I think a lot of people don't know about it. Um, and this can come from emotional, spiritual, or psychosocial type of injuries. And the thing about soul injuries is they're a little bit insidious. Um, and oftentimes and we don't recognize that it's happening um, because it's at that deep level that um, it's, it's not identified early. And this actually came about by a hospice nurse practitioner um, within the VA healthcare system who, after taking care of thousands of veterans who were in hospice, kind of noticed this pattern where at the end of life, uh, you know, she described a story where a veteran uh, whispered in her ear, you know, if you only really knew who I was,
would you think of me differently kind of thing. And, you know, he, she describes the unburdening, you know, uh, some of the traumas they go through that they're asked to do in service, in combat, um, that they never ever describe to anybody else um, are kind of disconnecting them from their true and authentic self um, because they've done these things um, and it's bothering them. So, you know, and these, these soul injuries come from things like um, a lot of unmourned hurt and loss, um, a lot of unforgiving guilt and shame mm. um, towards self and, and again, some diminished self-compassion where where it shows up what this looks like is is it, it it comes from things like rejection and abandonment and betrayals and injustices but what does it look like when you are when you are trying to to assess if this is is this happening with a person um so so there's a lot of masking of personal thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. um you know and i think nurses and, and helping professions tick a lot of these boxes off mm-hmm. um there's there's kind of that disconnection from your own inner goodness you know you start failing to see where you can contribute where your good parts are where your light is that shines through to people um and in this feeling there's a feeling kind of of this emptiness like maybe something is missing um maybe helpless helplessness perhaps helplessness yeah and and you know there's that constant thought of i'm just not good enough I'm not good enough, right? I didn't do it good enough. I didn't save everybody. Um, where that's really an unrealistic expectation, but but that's part of this. And and so what that leads to sometimes, you know, that leads to a lot of um, numbing agent use, um, substance use disorders, um, unhealthy coping mechanisms, and and what they're doing is they're trying to kind of shut down that part of self that is trying to hold on to the loss and the guilt and the shame, you know, because a lot of times you don't really know what to do with that, right? We don't want to admit it. We don't want to acknowledge that it's there. And so, so how do we get past that soul injury part is to, you know, again, kindly and compassionately acknowledge that it, it have, it's there, you know, and that can start the healing process within self and, and kind of lead you to, to, to the true self, the true person of who you are, your authentic self. Absolutely. Now, when you were talking, it was um, reminding me of the concept that of control. Yes. So I think from my colleagues in the ICU, at least those that I worked with previously, I remember checking in with them during the pandemic and and this isn't just isolated for critical care, it was everywhere, but I know so many of them, one of the things that marked on their heart the, the most was having to, you know, hold the phone for a FaceTime at somebody's end of life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know at least of one particular nurse who said, I, I just, I can't do it anymore. And that's, what got her, you know, she had attended a multitude of moments like that in a more traditional environment where the family was able to be present and to have to do that virtually and be the only physical person there Mm -hmm. with the patient that was dying was so distressing. And I think partly 
what was additional stress for that is because it was not within their control. So yeah. when you said, I didn't save everybody, I, you know, that is something that rings very true for me. Um, that kind of feeling of, I could have done more, I should have done more. I think that's almost for some of us is easier to take. It is easier for me to be frustrated that I didn't do enough than to have been helpless and put into this position as these nurses were through the pandemic, through the rules, the regulations, the things that had to be in place. It was out of their control. They were yeah. not able to do it any differently, even mm -hmm. if they had wanted to. And so um, that's quite unique, I think, to nurses. I think, I think one of the things that, that, you know, um, that, that when you were saying that, that comes to my mind too, you know, it, and, and you're right, nurses love to have control over what's going on. That's part of what makes us good at what we do. And why uncertainty is trauma. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think part of it too, you know, I, I have, um, it, over my lengthy career, um, between the field and the nursing, um, you know, I think one of the things that has helped me is, is, is to go back to kind of what Victor Frankel had said. Um, he was a psychologist, um, who wound up in uh, the concentration camps and found some profound freedom there that nobody had that helped him to survive. And, you know, he, he talks about the, between the stimulus and the response lies your freedom to choose. Wow. I always think about that when I feel like I have no control and when I'm feeling a little bit helpless, you know, I don't have control over the stimulus. I do have control over my response. And our, you know, when we talk about in, in somewhere in the middle is your freedom to choose how you're going to do that response. Um, you know, I had, when I have patients that, you know, sometimes some of my, my hardest calls were, were children that I was holding as they were passing away. And, you know, I framed that for myself, you know, thank goodness I was there because I know what kind of care they got. And I know they weren't alone and I know someone loved them in their passing. And so it reframes it in your mind to be able to not hold on to that. Mm. It's a different way of doing it. It's choosing your response and, and it's, it's hard to do. Um, I, the more you practice it, the easier it becomes, it becomes more automatic. But when we build resiliency and we, we work on these um, community resiliency model skills, um, that is a way to control your nervous system at the biological level. And so reframing your thinking um, like that is, is helpful for that. And these resiliency skills that we're going to share help you to have a little space between yeah. stimulus, and stimulus and response. And as I hear you two nurses talking, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who was at a mass shooting in Birmingham, Alabama last year. And she wasn't shot, but three people in the church supper were. And 
she crawled over to one of them and said, you are not alone. I am staying here with you. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let anybody else hurt you. I am here with you. And she kept saying, I, you are not alone. And I think it's what nurses, three people died that day, but I think that's what nurses do every day. I think they tell their people, you're not alone. And we're so excited to share even an app on these skills <laughs> that is free that you can practice on the way to work. Okay. At any time. Well, yes. You, thank you so much, Dr. McGinnis, for pulling us out of this <laughs> detour and back to, you know, why we wanted to come together today is to share these skills to combat the negativity and the trauma, the languishing, um, which you know, feel free to define if you'd like. Um, so please uh, tell me what flow is and how do you find your flow? So, you know, languishing is a, is a term that became popular during the pandemic because uh, people didn't feel necessarily sick, but they didn't feel well either. And so uh, it's kind of a midpoint between depression and being our best selves or flourishing. The flow um, is a, a state where you're fully engaged. You feel pretty alive. You, you know that what you're doing is important and that you're connecting with others. So when you're in a state of flow, you feel uh, very effective and you're not feeling helpless, you know. Um, and so when we're flourishing, um, uh, we generally experience low, low states of anxiety and depression, and we're feeling uh, that we have support from our coworkers, maybe our work family, maybe our uh, families of origin, friends, and we're, we're more likely to be effective in all areas of our lives. Mm. Uh, so that word, the phrase languishing is a term where I think it's especially good to approach a, a dialogue with nurses about how they're doing because as brenda was saying uh, a lot of nurses feel like they are very effective in what they're doing and they're helping and what they may not know is that the trauma is cumulative and it can add up and can cause all sorts of epigenetic changes all sorts of changes in in our well-being so uh, languishing is a good topic. Some people don't like the word. You can say uh, feeling a little burnt out. Uh, there are all sorts of ways to approach a conversation. But even if you uh, suspect that a colleague is clinically depressed, one thing that I want to emphasize for sure, if you uh, think that a person may be on the verge of self-harm, a coworker, it's okay to bring that up. You're not going to push somebody over the edge saying, you look pretty depressed to me. I'm wondering if you're isolating yourself, what's going on. And even the question of, have you thought about harming yourself is not going to push somebody over the edge. In fact, um, probably Brenda and I have asked that question tens of thousands of times at that point, at this point in our careers, nobody's ever laughed at me. Nobody's ever said, shame on you for asking. No, people see those questions about, are you okay? 
as uh, helpful questions. And it is something that we help ourselves by decreasing our own anxiety about our coworkers, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and flow, is, flow is, is an antidote to languishing, so to speak, but it has to be done, uh, it's an active process. And so what does that mean? That has to be done with intentionality. It's not something that just happens to us. It is again, one of those things that, that we decide we're going to engage in. Um, it, it has some components where it, it requires some sort of focus on goals. Um, it has some accumulating levels of complexity and challenging to your skills or um, gaining new skills. Um, so things that, that can create flow in us are, are learning new things and practicing gratitude, um, being aware of what our personal strengths are and acknowledging those. Um, not just kind of pushing those to the side um, and those and, and increasing your resiliency. And so if you've ever had those moments where you are engaged in doing something um, at work, at home, and you look up and you're like, oh, my gosh, three hours have gone by. I totally lost track of time. That is engagement in a flow activity. You are present in the present moment, completely focused on what you're doing. And, and allows you to move forward towards that that flourishing. Mm. Um, and but it, it's active. It, it doesn't just happen. You know, it, it's uh, you know, like happiness is kind of a passive process and is often garnered from things outside of ourselves. Where flow is something from within ourselves that we have to do with intentionality. So, would you say it's an accurate statement that? trying different hobbies could be a search for flow? Absolutely. Okay. You know, going out and playing a, a basketball game, you know, for those of us who are skill challenged in basketball, it can become a flow activity. You know? <laughs> um, but it, it can really be anything. And it can, it often happens, you know, people go to work and they're like, how can I find flow at work? Right. Yeah. It often happens at work. You get in, involved in something and you're just like, where did my day go? Um, yeah. it, it can happen anywhere, but mm -hmm. it has to be done with intentionality. It is more helpful in moving forward when there is some challenge to their skill. Now, now it's potentially possible where there is too much skill involved and you get frustrated. <laughs> yeah. There are, uh, you have to do more than just be exhausted at work, go home yeah. and watch TV. I mean, there's so many different things. You can engage yourself in a creative process. Uh, Brenda and I in our work with the VA, we've seen study after study that exercise yeah. heals a range. It, it is just absolutely good for what ails you, even preventing dementia. I mean, it's <laughs> so powerful. And so if you can walk, even if you can't walk, you can sit and be fit through a lot of methods. And strength training, for example, all of these things fortify ourselves for the important work that we do every day as nurses. Mm -hmm. So uh, find your uh, flow and creative activities, uh, find your, your buddies at work that are gonna support you and you're gonna support them. I mean, th this is what leads to uh, flourishing. And when we look back at our lives, we're gonna say we did something meaningful and that's an important part of integrity at the end of life. Mm -hmm. It builds resilience. Ah. <laughs> and you create your legacy. What do you want your legacy to be? I think we should ask 20-year-old nursing students, what's your legacy to be? Because in nursing, 
you can go in so many wonderful directions. So thinking about it at the beginning, midlife, and then looking back, you know you've made a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And let's get into it. Um, share with us the, the CRIM skills. CRIM skills, community resiliency model skills, are a set of wellness skills that allow for biological regulation of the nervous system. I think a lot of people, excuse <clears throat> me, when Brenda was talking about prolonged states of stress, uh, fight or flight is something that most people recognize, a little boost of adrenaline that you get when you see a spider or a snake or anything like that, something frightening. Um, and the fact of the matter is that uh, COVID causes us to be in prolonged states of fight and flight. And, and, um, and of course, sometimes what happens is a result of uh, prolonged stress is a, a feeling of being just frozen, inab inability to, to move forward. So these crimp skills um, uh, are easy to practice and uh, they're also, for example, uh, and you can do it in place. I mean, you, a nurse does not have to go to the uh, quiet room <laughs> to, to experience uh, the, uh, the well, Brenda, give us an overview. You're so good at that overview. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, when you're, when you're activated, you know, the first thing when we talk about regulation of that system is to recognize that it's activated. Um, that you're there. And so one, you know, it's a set of six skills um, that are meant to keep us in what we call the resilient zone or the okay zone. Um, and if you would imagine two uh, lines running parallel to each other with a space in between it. Okay. And, and imagine that your day kind of ebbs and flows in between those parallel lines. Okay. Because we all experience a range of emotions throughout the day. Um, but we're okay with them, right? And when things happen, we can kind of easily get knocked out of that zone. So we either get really activated up above where we have a lot of irritability and anxiety and just chronic stress going on, or we can get knocked down below um, where we get these states of sadness and depression and apathy and self-isolation. Um, and so the goal is to keep you within those two parallel lines. Now, now, from time to time, you will get knocked out of there. But the important part is these are normal responses to stress. However, when you're out of that zone, important not to unpack your bags and set up camp there. Uh -huh. Okay. So these skills, uh, these wellness skills will, will help keep you within the lines. If you're out of the lines, um, if you're feeling a little tense and stressed or sad, they'll keep you kind of regulated somewhere in your line and, and repetitive practice, intentional practice of these skills uh, leads to these skills being more effective over time. Um, they're, that sometimes they will become automatic and, and it's meant to widen that zone of being okay, that zone of resiliency that we operate in. And so, so what that allows us to do is tolerate more in a more effective way so we don't get knocked outside either to the top or the bottom, either our states of anxiety or our states of depression. And, and what Brenda is brilliantly describing there is tracking. And that's the first skill is <clears throat> the basis for all skills and tracking how you're doing 
Um, and staying in this resiliency zone is the key to keeping your wits about you in all situation. Don't you want to think clearer in any situation? Um, and you, you can get knocked out of the resiliency zone by maybe something that happens at the PTA. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you, when your mama bear comes out, you've got to decide, what do I want to do in this particular situation? So tracking and understanding that it's your nervous system that's uh, at work and that there are ways to regulate your nervous system, it gives you better choices and mm. gives you better choice of how you want to be in the world. Control yeah, it, it really, it <laughs> that really, we all love so really much. It really allows for, for more uh, productive communication, for better emotional regulation, for, for you to feel like you are in control. And we talked about that earlier. It allows you to, to stay with that that sense of control. Mm -hmm. um, so tracking, what's next? Yeah, so, so you know, when we talk about tracking the nervous system, I just want to touch on that a little bit. You know, important to kind of identify within your biological body um, what you're feeling. You know, is your heart racing fast? Are your palms getting sweaty? Are you starting to get that muscle cramp in the back of your shoulder? Um, and, and, and to notice those things. So that's the tracking part. Um, and that is the core of it all. So another one of the skills that's really important is called uh, resourcing. Um, and that involves, you know, in the moment, um, picturing uh, either it can be imagined, it can be real, a, a place or a event or something that is dear to you. You know, I have um, pictures of my children and and the dogs, of course, too, mm -hmm. uh, that that I use as resources. And so those are things that I can look at and and kind of help calm myself down because they're attached with um, with good thoughts. Um, I can bring in sensory stuff into that. So you're looking at, you know, you can bring in how does the dog's fur smel uh, smell? How does the dog's fur feel? You know, what about your child do you see that you like and find pleasant? Um, maybe it's their smile. Maybe it's the color of their eyes. So so you, you can take those resources, whether it's a place or a person or an event, and pull in all of the sensory information to think and identify um, at that same time. And it allows you to focus and be present in the moment. And what it does is it calms down the nervous system on a biological level. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've done to teach nurses about the skill of resourcing is to, um, we've introduced it, we say it's a res resource is anything that makes you feel better. Yeah. Um, and um, it, you know, it, what a question that we asked to introduce resources to help uh, resourcing to help nurses get a sense of what it is, is, Think of the, think of something during the pandemic that helped you feel better. What was the one person, place, or thing that you knew that if you gravitated towards that you were going to feel better? And to just visualize that, it can be a pet, it can be a person, um, it can be a spiritual resource. You know, about seventy percent of People who learn CREM skills, those who are surveyed, say that a spiritual resource is important to them. And there's no prescription to what that needs to be. 
it can be a sacred place. It can be a sacred object. Um, it can be a community. It, and it's uh, whatever is individual to that person. So thinking about these things and intensifying various aspects of the resource that uh, Brendan was just mentioning, uh, it helps us to lower our blood pressures. It helps mm -hmm. us to lower our pulse rates and helps us to create that space where we have a choice between stimulus and response. We have a choice and, and nurses can do this, uh, while they're at work, <laughs> they can do it on the way to work. Um, we do want to give you the link to the free app. Uh, it's called the iChill app because learning about resiliency skills helps you to practice them. And, uh, I think reduces positive changes, uh, in, in so many ways. So. Yeah, and you know, it's, there's a set of six skills. So there's there's several others that, that we we haven't talked about. But um, you know, the app is, as Dr. McGinnis mentioned, it is free. It, you don't even have to create an account. Um, there's no data linked, um, and so so it truly becomes something very personal to the to the individual. And they go through and they describe these skills um, very well in in this app. Um, and again, the more you use it, the more you practice these things, the more effective and the more uh, quickly they kind of help. Mm -hmm. So one of the resiliency skills that I was aware of is uh, called grounding, but I would love to learn a little bit more. Can you share with us what that is? So grounding is a skill where, I mean, if we don't have gravitational security, if we don't have our feet on the ground, if we, we don't want to be knocked over easily. We want to know that we're where we are in space and time and with respect to gravity, right? I mean, we nurses do their best to prevent falls, and yet we fall all the time with respect to not grounding ourselves uh, in, in the situation. Um, so I, I was teaching these skills in, in December of 2020. Um, and, and a nurse who was taking uh, the CREM training, uh, she came back for the second session and she said, you know, I use that grounding skill because I was having a terrible day in the ICU. <clears throat> and the terrible day involved uh, something that was quite common during the COVID era, which was uh, two to three deaths per shift for some nurses in ICUs. And so we describe grounding as you can do it in a lot of different positions, but sometimes just becoming aware, taking a few minutes to become aware and put both feet on the ground. Maybe you're sitting down to chart, put both feet on the ground and you remind yourself, where are my feet? My feet are touching the floor. My feet are in comfortable socks in my comfortable work shoes. And, and I can also ground, we also taught that you can ground by walking, by just being aware of your feet on the floor. And uh, so as this nurse was recounting her experience with using the skill of grounding, she said, so I had a shift last week where I lost multiple patients and I'm paraphrasing her. And she said, I thought, I cannot do one more post-mortem care today. I've had it with all this death. And she had also downloaded the app, and so she was 
hearing Elaine Miller Cares, who's the founder of the Crim Skills Talk, in her very calming voice about these different skills, she said, I'm just going to try this grounding skill. And she said, I started becoming aware um, as I started to do postmortem care, which, and then she added something like, it's the la very last thing I can do as a nurse or this human being. I want to do it uh, with my full heart. So she says, I started becoming aware of my feet and my toes in my shoes. And I became aware that I could do this, that I could stand here. I knew how to do it. I had somebody helping me do it. I just needed to um, create a, a few moments within myself to realize I'm here now, I'm helping, I'm making this better for this patient and his family. And I'm gonna do the dignified work of end of life care and the postmortem care. And uh, she said, that's how I got through it. And hearing that story, I mean, I just thought she's a hero. She's mm -hmm. my hero. And I'm sure she was a hero to that patient's family. And yes, she had had many FaceTimes with last conversations and that had been traumatic, but she went within herself, she said, and then she says, there's something to this, this self-regulation stuff. She says, there's, it really is your nervous system. And, and we all need to become very uh, more aware of it because otherwise it's taking a toll on all of us. Mm -hmm. And she said that in December of 2020, and we still had a long way to go. So I'm hoping that, and, and I know for a fact that this particular hospital uh, is the, the UAB health system. They actually got a, a, a apply for and received a HRSA grant to CREM skills were one of the skills that they, uh, they had five of their uh, nurse educators learn these skills because it's a valuable skill to have. And uh, it was funded by the Health Resources Service Administration, HRSA. And it's a program to be rec replicated across the, they don't just do CREM, they do a lot of other things too, but they, uh, it certainly is something for the here and now. And grounding is huge. And, and as Brenda said, sometimes they become, the more we practice, the more automatic it can be. It slows down what ha is happening in your amygdala and in your limbic system. And that's the seat of your emotions. So you have, you learn to teach your body how to work together in sync to produce the sort of clear thinking that you really want. Any other skills that we'd like to, to dive into? So, so another one that, that is in the part of the crumb skills is called gesturing. Um, and gesturing is, is kind of fun because oftentimes we don't know some of the things we do when we get stressed. It, it takes outside people, other people to point it out to us. Um, so, you know, sometimes when I, when I get stressed, one of the things I do is uh, kind of rub my chin. And, and, and not really noticing, you know, like I don't pay attention to that, but it happens. Um, some people will take off their glasses and kind of rub their forehead and down their face. Um, other people in, in kind of self-protective mode when they're doing gesturing will, you know, if they hear something, they'll put their hand over their heart. Um, and that, if you, if you do that and you think about how your body's responding to it, it, it really provides a sense of stabilization a sense of um, anchoring, so to speak. Um, and so those are what gestures are meant to do. Um, 
you know, some people will run their fingers through their hair or, you know, but, but sometimes those are kind of unconscious things. But, but when you're paying attention and when you're tracking, you, you notice those things. And I do think, you know, I think the hand over the heart to me is really um, one of the things that I do teach to patients, um, you know, especially if they're in session and they are starting to get a little anxious, you know, I'll just have them put their hand over their heart and um, just keep it there for a minute. And it helps to calm them down. Um, so, and sometimes, like I said, it's unconscious. I had another patient one time who took his hat and he's like, I just need to turn this backwards. Like that was his gesture is just to put his hat in a different position um, that was more comfortable for him. So with gesturing, it's not necessarily that we're trying to cultivate a gesture that works for us, but more become aware of what you already are doing and then give yourself permission to do that in the moment? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, how many of us when we're stressed will play like putting our hand over our forehead and like, oh my gosh, how am I going to handle this, right? Yeah. And we're rubbing our temples with our hand on our head. Um, yeah. You know, that is a gesture meant to help calm the nervous system. Okay. Um, but, but oftentimes people don't realize that that's what they're doing. And I think, you know, tagging onto that, you know, the shift and stay really um, is another skill that, that flows directly, I think, in a good segue, Dr. McGinnis, that you had just described, you know, when we, when we are having something that's going on around us or we notice something within ourselves that is, is not pleasant, um, that doesn't feel very good, um, is to shift our focus to something that is either kind of a neutral sensation or or a more pleasant sensation and then stay with that stay with that stuff that is more neutral or more pleasant mm. um, i think i think the nurses have to do that that the skill that she just talked about shift and stay i think nurses have to do a lot of that all day every day yeah right mm -hmm. i mean you like you're trying to help your nurse uh as a nurse you're trying to help your patient let that pain uh, medicine take control and then your patients in a lot of pain so what are you doing for yourself you can ground yourself as this nurse was who's doing the post-mortem care she was shifting and staying by using grounding as a technique she uh she said i also like resources i think of my dog you know she said so as i was doing the care rather automatically i thought about what if my dog was sitting here beside me you know that would be a resource for me so mm -hmm. If you practice these things, they become more automatic, just like anything, any skill. And we deserve to practice them so that we can continue in our roles. So I did um, have a question that came up while you all were sharing about that. We spoke earlier about how cynicism has really infected our profession. Uh, sub-pandemic, if you will. What would you say to the cynics that um, when they hear crim skills described, say, oh, that stuff doesn't work for me, or, um, oh, that's just dissociation. Um, you're not dealing with your feelings, or uh, I don't feel it immediately. It's not working. You know, again, I would say that the intentionality is there. It needs to be there and the practice should be there. Um, but, but you're right. There are people again who, 
will choose not to engage with them um, or you know expect that it's it's a one and done kind of thing and it, it's not um, again these need to be continually practiced because what happens when you continually practice something um, I have a description of this um, I like to describe this as you know your normal go-to response which may not be working so well right now if you picture it like a well-worn trail going through some grass okay and you know maybe off to the left hand side you see kind of where some other people have gone but it's not very well worn right uh -huh. when you practice crem skills you are taking the path that is less worn and 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 your brain like your neurons in your brain will lay down those new pathways and that becomes their go-to pathway and eventually the path that looked really very clear starts to get overgrown the pathway that wasn't quite so effective that everybody goes down starts to grow over and become less noticeable because you have practiced these skills on a continual basis and it's laid down within the brain um, due to neuroplasticity a new way of functioning a new way of dealing with things and so when uh, Tina had talked before about how you know trauma changes the brain well healing also changes the brain and, and it does it through through these mechanisms of neuroplasticity and in uh, regenerating a new way to do things. Um, it, it's kind of like creating a new habit that becomes your go-to thing. Um, and so when I talked about these things becoming more automatic and becoming more effective over time, it's because that path has become the well-worn path in the brain. And, well, and I don't know. Uh, somebody who may be experiencing cynicism, um, it, we are biological beings, and I would say to that person, um, do you want your nervous system, do you want fight or flight to rule your life? Because there are ways around that, and we are biological entities, and like it or don't, life is very short. How you want to live it, try the present moment. <laughs> And there's so many things in the present that can soothe, our, we can learn to soothe ourselves in the present moment by identifying colors and sensations. And, and you may think it's a lot of psychological mumbo jumbo, but we are biological entities. And life is short. We're building our legacies as we speak. What do you want to be remembered for? And, um, you know, it, I think a lot of nurses don't think about leaving their legacies, but they are because who you remember at these pivotal points of your life uh, are often nurses, pivotal healthcare points. Um, and I just welcomed a granddaughter two weeks ago today. Congratulations. And thank you very much. She's perfect. <laughs> and so are those nurses. She got so, uh, my daughter got such great nursing care. And um, she remembers the nurses from when her first baby was born three years ago. And she'll no doubt remember the nurses that helped her through 20 hours of labor and an emergency oh. C-section. Oh. oh my gosh. So here we are on, you know, on the verge of, uh, at pivotal points in people's lives in the most extreme of uh, situations of human existence. So. 
you're building your legacy every day as a nurse. Do it intentionally. Do it using science-based methods that are known to decrease burnout, to improve resiliency, and it's going to make you happier and your family happier too. Well, and I just want to say, um, you all have taken me on a journey and we've come full circle because I now very much understand what you mean by have hope. You said that right at the very beginning and to hear, um, that we have that space to make a choice and that our brains can be undamaged through these skills and through this intentional practice, um, that gives me hope. So I want to say thank you so very much for doing this with me, for doing all that you have done to learn and, and disseminate this information and, you know, utmost for being a wonderful part of the nursing profession. It's our privilege to help other nurses. Absolutely. You know, and I just, our privilege. I, I am I am grateful for the opportunity you've given us to to share this because I think it's very important. Um, you know, Agreed. and in the words of the great Jedi Master Yoda, you know, do or do not. There is no try. Let's do it. Yeah. Thank you both so much. It's yeah. been wonderful. Thank you for having us. Oh my goodness, that was really thrilling um, and so, so fascinating to talk with Dr. McGinnis and Dr. Mayfield about resiliency and CRIM skills. Uh, if you are interested in the app that they were talking about, it is called iChill, and I will put a link to uh, that app in the description of the podcast. Um, I'm very hopeful that this information serves you well um, and that you get something positive uh, from this interview. It was an honor to do and I am grateful to each of you. Um, very happy to have you as listeners. Oracle is produced by myself and Sarah Woolwine via the Anchor podcast app and is distributed by the Innovative Learning Department. You can listen to Oracle anywhere podcasts are available, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. And remember, we are not what we know, but what we are willing to learn. Thank you and take care.